Father, we thank you for that question uh, that we sang to each other. Help us, Lord, to consider that, to take time every once in a while to consider, are we washed in the blood? Have we come to know Christ? Are we trusting in him? Have we abandoned all our efforts to save ourselves? Have we resigned ourselves to hope only in Christ alone? Um, have we gladly thrown away all other attempts uh, because we have found in him the only sure thing that we will ever find in the Lord Jesus? May that be true of each one of us, Lord, and if there's anyone here that it's not true of, may you use your word to make it true of them today, that they would be found in Christ. And Lord, those of us who do know him and are trusting in him, help us to know him more through your word. Help us to love him more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We're looking at verses 20 through 28. And probably this message will turn into a two-parter. Um, just want to make sure we've got unhurried time to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So if you grabbed an outline, we'll probably only make it partway through that, but we'll see how it goes. So we're in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28. So let me read that for us. And I please excuse my voice if I sound like I'm going through puberty. It's because I'm getting over a cold. Um, I might screech every once in a while, so I apologize in advance. Verse 20, <clears throat> Paul says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. When someone falls into error, it's not enough to tell them they are wrong, nor is it enough to tell them why they are wrong. In order to truly be helpful to them, you have to tell them what is right. And in order to be the most helpful to them, you have to tell them why what's right is right. In verses 12 through 19, which we walked through last week, we saw Paul tell these believers why the people in their midst who were saying that there's no resurrection from the dead, why those people were wrong. And he told them not only that they were wrong, but why they were wrong. And do we remember how he did that? The way he told them why they were wrong was by stating a false premise that if there is no resurrection from the dead, such and such is going to be the consequences of that. And he gave them quite a frightening description of what the consequences would be. In verses 20 through 28, Paul is going to tell them what is right, and he's going to tell them why it's right. 
He's going to declare to them the truth of the resurrection of the dead. But even more helpfully, he's going to show them why it is true that there is a resurrection of the dead. And the reasons that Paul is going to give for why it's right to believe that Christ's people will be resurrected is anchored in Christ's resurrection. So Paul is going to argue for the resurrection of the dead, but his starting point is Christ's resurrection. And the reason he's starting there is because that is what he and the Corinthians already agree on. We saw in verses 1 through 11 that these believers already believed that Jesus rose from the dead. So the issue is not whether or not Christ rose from the dead. As we saw last week in verse 12, the issue is those who are saying that Christ's people will not be raised from the dead. That is what the issue is. So we'll see in verses 20 through 22 how Paul will argue that Christ's resurrection is the basis for expecting a future resurrection. In verses 23 through the beginning of verse 27, Paul will explain that Christ's resurrection is the first in an ordered series of resurrections. And then in the rest of verse 27 on through verse 28, Paul will show what the goal of the resurrection is. So let's start by looking at the expectation of the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ causes us to expect something. Last week, in verses 12 through 19, Paul expounded upon what the consequences would be if it was true that the dead are not raised. And do we remember what the first domino to fall would be if that was true? If the dead are not raised, then who else has not been raised? Christ. Christ. And if Christ has not been raised, Paul said his preaching would be what? Vain. Empty. And the faith of the believer would be worthless. And to top it all off, in verse 19, Paul said, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But when we come to verse 20, we see this amazing contrast. Paul says, verse 20, But now Christ has been raised from the dead. So Paul assures the Corinthians that the scenario that he'd been contemplating in verses 12 through 19 is not true because, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And not only has Christ been raised from the dead, but verse 20 goes on to say that Jesus is the first fruits of those who are asleep. Jesus' resurrection is described as the first fruits. What are the first fruits? Well, it's the beginning of a harvest. We're just wrapping up the season of autumn, which is the harvest time for farmers. They've planted their fields of corn, and they've harvested that corn. And I'm not a farmer, um, so any farmers here can correct me if I'm way off base, but I imagine that after the farmer has planted his corn and the stalks have grown and he sees the harvest approaching and he walks out into that field and he sees the first ripened ears of corn on the stalk, that gives him the expectation of what? That he'll find more down the road and he'll reap a harvest. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead is like that. It tells us that there will be more resurrections like his to come. 
And that hope, that hope that we have as believers to be raised from the dead, is why the Bible often describes dead believers as being asleep. That's the euphemism that the Bible often uses to describe a dead believer as asleep. Verse 20 says that Jesus is the first fruits of those who are asleep. Talking about believers. Uh, Mark chapter 5 is a great example of why this word means what it means. In Mark 5, there's the instance of a synagogue official coming to ask Jesus to heal his sick daughter who's at death's doorstep. By, By the time Jesus gets to the man's house, the daughter has already died. People were weeping and wailing over her, and in verse 39, Jesus tells these mourners something. He says, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. Verse 40 tells us what the mourners think about Jesus' comment. They begin laughing at Jesus because they think he's delusional. This guy's out to lunch. Of course she's not asleep, she's dead. But then Jesus enters the girl's room in verses 41 to 42, and it says this, Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they, those who were laughing at him, they were completely astounded. Jesus wasn't delusional, when he said the girl was asleep. He knew she had died, but he also knew what he was about to do, that he was going to awaken her out of death. And so he said she's asleep. People who have died trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation are described as being asleep not because they're not actually dead, they are, but they're described as asleep because the day is coming when they will be awakened out of death to new life just as Jesus did, who is the first fruits of the resurrection. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 to 22 say this, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. In these two verses, Paul is explaining why he can say that the resurrected Christ is the first fruits of more resurrections to come. How can he be so sure that just because something happened to Jesus, that means it's going to happen for others as well? Just because someone wins the lottery doesn't mean I can go buy a ticket and expect that I will win. Just because something happens to someone doesn't mean it will automatically happen to others. So how can Paul be so sure about this? Well, verses 21 to 22 tell us why. The reason that Paul is so certain is because of the relation in which Jesus stands to his people. Jesus stands in the same relation to his people as Adam stands in relation to his people. Adam is the first man that God created stood in the Garden of Eden as a representative of all the humanity that would descend from him. When Adam disobeyed God and incurred the penalty of death, 
All the humanity that would descend from Adam was implicated in his sin. And that implication of being connected to his sin guaranteed that they all would die just as Adam died. What he did flowed to the rest of his descendants. And we see this reality play out every single day. We heard of it in the sharing of joys and concerns this morning. All men and women die because they were all represented by Adam in that garden all those millennia ago. All of Adam's people die. But Jesus Christ, he is the representative of a new humanity. When Jesus was born of a virgin, the reason why that doctrine is so important is because it means that Jesus was not represented by Adam. The sin of Adam and the penalty that Adam incurred did not pass to Jesus because Jesus was not represented by Adam. Instead, Jesus would become the representative of his own people. We see Paul speak extensively of this in Romans chapter 5. Turn there for a moment. He speaks of it in verses 12 through 21. I won't read all of that, but I'd encourage you to read that whole passage, Romans 5, 12 to 21. But we see the gist of it in verses 18 to 19. Paul there says, So then, as through one transgression, that's Adam's sin in the garden, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, that's Jesus' act of righteousness, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. So we see Adam and Jesus are both representatives of a humanity. There's really only two races in the world. There are those who are Adam's people and there are those who are Jesus' people. Jesus, as the representative for his people, did not die on the cross for his own sins. He died on the cross as the representative of his people, paying the penalty for their sins. And he rose from the dead in the same capacity as the representative of his people, accomplishing their justification, their righteous standing before God. If you're still in Romans, flip over to Romans 6. This connection between Christ and his people, this representative role that Jesus stands in is why Paul can say what he says in verses 4 through 9 of Romans 6. Verse 4, Paul says, Therefore, we, believers in Christ, have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection." knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. 
Now, if we have died with Christ, again, this is by virtue of his representation of us on the cross. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Because Jesus is the representative of all who repent of their sins and trust in him, what happened to Jesus can be said to have happened to us. Because Jesus is the representative of his people, the reality of his resurrection will be the reality of his people. Just as the reality of what Adam did in the garden is our reality, so if we're connected to Christ by faith, his reality becomes ours. Because he lives, we also will live if we trust in him. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And that brings a question to our minds. Same kind of question we sang in our song, uh, in the last song of that set. Are you in Christ today? Are you in Christ today? Are you daily turning from sin and trusting in Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? If you are, you will experience a resurrection to everlasting life because you are in Christ. And where he is, there you will be also. When you die, your soul will immediately go into the presence of the Lord. And when he returns and sets foot on this earth to establish his kingdom, he will resurrect your dead body and he will reunite your soul with your body, a glorified, resurrected body, and you will reign with him forever and ever. But if you are not in Christ, if you are not repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus to save you, you are only in Adam, and all you can look forward to is death. The Bible says that you too will be resurrected, but you will only be raised up to be cast into the lake of fire. So if you are outside of Christ today, I would urge you by faith to run to Christ, to trust in him, turning from your sins, so that you may be found to be in Christ instead of out of him. If you come to him, he will accept you. If you put your faith in him, it's because he purchased you on that cross. So that is the expectation of the resurrection. That brings us to the order of the resurrection. We see this in verses 23 to 27a. We may wonder why God doesn't raise us from the dead right away. Why don't, when I die, why am I not immediately raised up from the dead? Why are all those graves next door in the cemetery still full? A lot of those folks died in faith in Christ, and yet they still lie there. Why the holdup? Well, verse 23 says, But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. God has ordained that there be an order to the resurrection. It doesn't happen haphazardly or in a trickle over the millennia. No, there are two general stages to the resurrection. First, Christ was resurrected, 
second, his people will be resurrected. Paul, in this passage, he doesn't concern himself with giving any more detail than that. When we look at the other writings of Paul, together with the Old Testament and the book of Revelation, we find that the resurrection of Christ's people can be further broken down into even more stages of resurrections. For example, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, Paul there describes the resurrection of those of, of the saints who died in the church age. Their resurrection will occur before that coming seven-year tribulation. We call it the rapture, when Christ meets his people in the air, raising them up out of their graves. That's, that's the first. But Scripture also speaks of another resurrection event of the saints of God. We see this in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And we also see it in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 5. Daniel 12 speaks of the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. And Revelation chapter 20 speaks of the resurrection of those people who die during the tribulation. When the tribulation ends and Jesus comes to establish his kingdom, he resurrects the Old Testament saints and those saints who died in the tribulation. Scripture puts these different resurrection events of Christ's people into one category, and that is called the first resurrection. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. As you're turning there, Revelation 19, that's when the tribulation has come to an end and Christ rides out of heaven on a white horse, followed by the church, those who have been resurrected. They follow him down and Christ wipes out his enemies. He destroys the Antichrist and the one who was the false prophet of the Antichrist. He just wipes them out. Chapter 20 tells us what happens after Jesus comes back. Verse 1, the Apostle John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them. That's likely a reference to the church. Remember Paul said to the Corinthians back in chapter 6, you will judge angels. They sat on them, these resurrected folks from the church, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Those are the saints who died in the tribulation. Christ will raise them up. And it's likely that the Old Testament saints are raised up at that time as well. Verse 5, the rest of the dead, that's unbelievers, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. 
This, the resurrection of the saints, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So that's the category that Paul is talking about in chapter 15. He says, first Christ is raised, then his people are raised. He's talking there about the first resurrection, the resurrection of believers. And he doesn't go into the kind of detail that the rest of Scripture goes into. He's speaking very broadly about it. But when that first resurrection is complete, it will launch the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ upon the earth, the kingdom of God and of Christ. The second resurrection, as I mentioned, will be the resurrection of unbelievers, and that will take place after the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. And you see that in verses 11 through 15 of chapter 20. In our passage in 1 Corinthians, Paul is only concerned with the resurrection of Christ and of believers. He's not talking about unbelievers here. Just He's talking about the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of believers. And he's speaking about it in very general and broad terms. In verse 24, back in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes what occurs following the resurrection of Christ's people. Verse 24 says, Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Again, Paul is not concerned about giving a lot of detail here. That's not his purpose. He's not telling us how much time will take place between Christ's resurrection and the resurrection of his people. We're still in that gap in between. How many years in are we? 2,000, about 2,000. And we don't know how many more years it will be until that first resurrection that follows after Christ's resurrection takes place. Could be today, could be a while from now. We don't know. That's why we have to be ready today, trusting in him today. Paul also is not telling us how much time will take place between the resurrection of Christ's people and the end. He's not telling us how much time. He's just giving us the order in which these things happen. He's not giving us a timeline here. Now, what does Paul mean by the end? After the resurrection of his people, then the end will come. What does Paul mean by that? Well, we learn more about what Paul means by what he says will happen at the end. Verse 24, he says, Then the end comes when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. That tells us that when Paul says the end, he's talking about the completion of Christ's mission, where he brings all of creation into harmony with the Creator. That is the end. That is what the work of Christ is accomplishing. Roman, or, uh, Colossians chapter 1 talks about how God was pleased for all the fullness to dwell in Jesus Christ and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. That is what the end entails. 
It is the bringing into harmony creation and creator. So what Adam lost by his fall into sin and death, Jesus is reclaiming by his death and resurrection. So Jesus' death and resurrection, what we're going to celebrate here in a couple minutes, his death and resurrection was the decisive death blow to Satan and to his powers and to all who are allied with him. But that doesn't mean that there's no more work left to do. Yes, the war was won at the cross. The ultimate outcome was decided at Calvary. But there still remains the work of running evil out of the universe. The cleanup work has yet to be done. And there's no doubt in Paul's mind as to whether or not Christ will be able to do that. The coming thousand-year reign of Christ that we read about in Revelation, that is not only the fulfillment of God's promises to his people Israel. It's not only the fulfillment of promises that he has made to the church. But that thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ is also going to be a demonstration of Christ's dominance over evil. His rule over all that is opposed to God. And evil's last gasp will come at the end of that thousand-year reign. To close our time for now in this passage, let's go back to Revelation chapter 20. This passage goes on to tell us about evil's last gasp. Chapter 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, again, that is the period of time when Christ is ruling over the earth, subjecting all enemies to himself. That's the kingdom that the disciples were looking for and proclaiming when Jesus sent his disciples throughout Israel, proclaiming, they were proclaiming this kingdom And on the day when Jesus was going to ascend into heaven, this was the kingdom they were asking him about. Lord, is it at this time that you are going to do that? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know when. This is that kingdom. And this tells us what happens at the end of that kingdom period. Verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who was deceiving them, or who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Then I saw... A great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown 
into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That is, in Paul's words, that moment that we just read is when Christ will have abolished all rule and all authority and power. We're going to stop here. We'll pick that up. So if you grabbed an outline, Mark, where we left off, we're still in the middle of point two, um, but that's where we're going to go next time and finish that out. But let's pray.